0: This is the One in Three podcast. Let's go. What's up, everybody? As always, I'm your host, Alan Sternberg. This is the One in Three podcast. Today, I am joined by Tenoria Askew of Tenoria's Table. Tenoria was on MasterChef in 2016 as a contestant, and she kind of parlayed that into a, a food career and now has a really successful private chef business here in Indianapolis. I know Tenoria through my wife, actually, who was on the Slow Food Board with her here in town, Slow Food Indy, and I did a couple events for them and, and just kind of ran into each other a couple times over the years. and. Something that has always kind of struck me as important to Tenoria that that as I followed her on social media, she used her platform to articulate the her views on the world and and advocated for for change in lots of different ways. Something she said a couple of weeks ago, probably it's probably been two months now, um, but it was something about, um, are you comfortable talking about racism? And if you are, what work have you done? And I don't think it was a, I, I don't think it was a challenge, but I think it was something that that made you think. And it's something that I've kind of carried with me pretty much with every interaction I've had in the last couple, probably a couple of months, like I said, since I saw it was, you know, what, what is that person that I'm dealing with? What is their worldview? What is... What are the, the events of their life that there's no way I could ever know that shaped them into being who they are? And how, how can I be critical of somebody and, and not be empathetic? So I, I just kind of, I keep that in the back of my mind as a, a constant reminder to be empathetic towards other people because everybody is dealing with a lot right now. If you're in the restaurant business, you know, there's probably a fair amount of, existential dread that you're you're feeling as as some cities are, are facing secondary shutdowns and i think the the likelihood of a a big spike in cases after after thanksgiving is is pretty high and you know if you're listening into the future hopefully hopefully i'm wrong on that one i hope i'm i hope myself and many 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 other people are are miscalling that and people for the most part get the picture and, and do the responsible, safe thing. But you know, this isn't a COVID podcast. This is a, a food podcast where, where I talk to people. So I had a great conversation with Tenoria the other day and, you know, I, I think it's an important listen to just gain some perspective that that other people out there aren't that they don't share your, your life and you don't share theirs. So, um, don't be afraid to invite them to the table, whether it's virtual or on the internet or or video or whatever. And, and at some point in the future, obviously, when we can get back to to being around other people, um, you know, have conversations, real conversations over a meal with with someone that you might not have. I think you can probably learn a lot. So, this is my chat with Tenoria. Ask you. Um, and if you haven't definitely go follow her, she gives her handle at the at the end. I think everything is at Tenoria table. But great person. Uh really enjoyed talking with her. So here you go. Today I'm joined by Tenoria Askew, and we're gonna be talking about her journey through through food and probably a little bit of the social sphere, because I feel like that's definitely a big part of of who you are and, and your advocacy for various causes so um, welcome to Noria and you know I like to usually start off with just kind of kind of getting a rundown of where you've been what what the outline of your journey has been
1: sure my journey's a little weird <laughs> but um, I started out working in my corporate career in banking and went over to training and development and diversity and inclusion and loved it but i just knew that i didn't want to die being in banking and human resources um and so (laughs) i kind of pursued cooking a little bit as a side hustle um i started my company tenorius table while i was still in my corporate career but it really was just like a side gig i think i anticipated like in five years i'd be able to do it full-time um, but shortly after I started my business, um, I decided to audition for the show Master Chef with Gordon Ramsey, and that really did just change my perspective on doing what I love to do versus doing what I feel obligated to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and two months after I got back from filming that show, um, I quit my job. I had been at my job for 15 years, so that was... A really tough decision but it was perfect timing because masterchef kind of took my little side hustle and turned it into a full-blown business and that was four years ago and i honestly say that i feel like my business is feeling more real and sustainable like sustained to where it's a business that like i can hire people and support myself and and think about all of those different things now four years later um but I think that part of the reason why that feels that way is I've recognized like what things are most important to me and what I want to um, be represented in my brand and in my corporate career. I did a lot with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I have found ways to kind of bring that over into my current business with Tenorius Table and the food space. Being that it's Tenorius Table and it's all about having a seat at the table and. Enjoyed a meal at the table because I feel like, you know, food kind of unites people and brings people together. Um, and so that's where I've drawn in the diversity and inclusion anti-racism space is everyone has a seat at the table. Everyone's welcome. I feel like a lot of people um, spend so much time trying to get a seat at different corporate tables or structural tables that affect change and it's really hard to get a seat at those tables and so I'm like nope you can come sit at my table I'll just make you be nice yeah (laughs) that's awesome
0: (laughs) yeah and I think I think you're exactly right about you know food is kind of this this binding force that that brings people together and you know we all eat and you know that's kind of a a great metaphor about the you know it's hard to get a seat at certain tables so yeah I I really love that yeah. Um, you were, I know you were in Chattanooga or you're from Chattanooga, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What brought you to Indianapolis?
1: I definitely say that I am a Hoosier cause I grew up here. Um, but all of my family's in Chattanooga. We moved here when I was three cause my dad works well retired from now. Um, GM and there was a big GM plant in Kokomo. And I'm, from, I'm
0: from Anderson. So I'm familiar. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my, um, we lived there for a few years and my mom was like, you get me the heck out of Kokomo. (laughs) So we moved to Indianapolis and my dad commuted for a long time. So I've been here since I was three. And even with master chef saying that I was from Tennessee, I mean, my cooking roots are definitely Southern. And so that kind of makes sense. But people ask me like, yeah, do you know so-and-so? Or what side of town are you from in Chattanooga? And I'm like, I don't know, ask my mom because <laughs> all I really know is Indiana.
0: Yeah. Um, How the how was the MasterChef process? Like, I, I think there's a lot of people that are probably curious about, I, I know there's several auditions and yeah. I've gone through some TV interviewing process, but mm-hmm. I've never been successful with that. But what, what was that process like?
1: It's intense from start to finish, from like audition day until the very last episode. And even thereafter, it's intense. Um, The audition process is three months long, but it really is a lot of send this in, tape yourself doing this and do that and make this. And so there's a lot of that. But then when you get to California, that's when they really find out if you can cook. Because everything that you do leading up to that there's so many easy ways to cheat. Mm -hmm. Like um, on audition day, you had to bring a prepared dish and there were no means to heat it up. And so I have a friend who let me borrow their Cambro. And so I shoved everything in this big Cambro cooler, found a friend's parents in Chicago where I could cook my food in their kitchen. And so I just threw the whole pork chop in the skillet (laughs) in the cambro and i'm walking downtown chicago with this cambro to keep everything hot um and when you get there you kind of realize that didn't really matter um because everything in master chef they're tasting it cold everything yeah and so um people were bringing microwaves and making their their like audition dishes and crock pots i'm like wow you guys are like serious about this um but the actual competition part, when you're there and you're in California, I kind of consider it like adult daycare boot camp. Yeah. Because you're, you're sequestered like jury duty. So you don't have access to friends and family. You don't have access to your cell phone um, or a laptop or anything like that. You don't get to drive around or like call an Uber if you want to go somewhere Everything is a well-oiled machine run by them. When you get up, where you go, what you're doing, what you're wearing, everything is a surprise every day. I always say the only thing I knew every single day was what time to get up and what to wear, and that's because someone told me. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and how long was that? For, like it was once two you were, and were half in there. Months. Yeah, two and, two and half. a half wow.
1: months. Um. I mean, it was kind of nice because we went, I went to California in January, so I missed Indiana winter. That was nice.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But I mean, you get to talk to your family for five minutes a day. And so even when you're having like the hardest of days, you can't call your family or friends or you're really by yourself. So that was, that was pretty intense. And then also just the competition factor, cooking under that kind of time slot, like you don't get prep time. You don't, you know, get even a lot of time to think about what you're cooking. Um, when you lift that mystery box to find out what is under it, that's real. Like, that's really when we're finding out. Yeah. Um. And so you get, like, five or ten minutes to figure out what you're cooking. And then you have a half hour to cook it. And it's stuff that you would normally spend all day cooking. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I feel like the time constraints were probably the most frustrating part to me, and then memorizing recipes. Like, I like baking, but I don't consider myself a baker, and I like baking when I am following a recipe or it's one that I've done so many times that I know it with my eyes closed, and you don't get that luxury. Like, you they give you a stack of recipes that are really, really basic based on very basic ingredients. That's why I kind of call it culinary boot camp. Yeah, Because it's like making a pot chew and, you know, just basic stuff that you, most people probably learn in culinary school within their first month. And we're like, okay, we have to memorize all of these. Sure, we've probably made these before at home, but we've never made them with practice like a culinary student has where now they know it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so yeah that 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 was one of the hardest parts too it made my old brain work really hard
0: yeah but do you think that I mean I the private chef and and doing these events can throw all sorts of curveballs at you so do you think it prepared you for that
1: absolutely most definitely um as a friend of mine helped me out when I'm doing larger dinner parties and she's always in awe of like oh crap we forgot such and such and I'm like oh just do this and she's like how do you know that I'm like I don't know I just know what tastes good together Yeah. Um, or it's not about the ingredients it's about the method with this particular thing so yeah it definitely helped me think on my feet and improvise and not really sweat the small stuff because um, you don't have time to sweat the small stuff on Chef. they've moved on to something else
0: do they do they teach you? Like that's always something that
1: I'm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really nice. Um, probably about five days a week we're actually on set filming an episode or two. Well, an episode a day, roughly. Okay. But then on Saturdays, sometimes also on Fridays, we would go into a test kitchen, and these are all culinary trained people in the kitchen who have um like the leaders have studied under Gordon Ramsay. And they will either do like a demo of something that's in that packet and then say, okay, go do it yourself, put your own spin on it. Or they'll just say it's a free day and you have access to so many ingredients. It's nuts. It's just a big room and one wall is all just like spices and seasonings. And it's like from floor to ceiling, and then another wall is just refrigerators of veggies, and one refrigerator full of butter and cream. I was in heaven. <laughs> um, and then just another wall full of nothing but the finest equipment like they buy brand new equipment for every season. Um, and so the free days were probably the hardest because you're getting in there and you have all these options, and you get maybe. Eh, sometimes it's split where you get two hours in and then you go take a break and then you come back for two hours. But sometimes usually it's like four to five hours straight in the test kitchen and you have to figure out how to make, you know, something restaurant quality and you have access to all these things and you just can't wrap your head around it. But that was, that part was really, really cool. I feel like I made some of my better dishes in the test kitchen that never got seen on the show.
0: Yeah. I I think there's, there's, kind of an intuitiveness when you cook that that resonates and and I always know that some of the best things I've done have been kind of spur of the moment and then when I try to recreate on my something's just not quite as right because I have something I'm aiming for or like I'm trying to live up to something instead of just exploring so I I think that totally makes sense to me that's that's Um, an excellent point so your food roots you said are southern um, yeah. Do you feel like a lot of African Americans are are kind of pigeonholed into that Southern, that Southern food sphere?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that if you think about historically, a lot of enslaved people were the ones feeding um, a lot of Slave owners and their family and teaching um, their kids how to cook. And so I think that's where a lot of s- Southern food is rooted. And, you know, Southern states are still pretty keen on all those olden days. Uh, and so yeah. I, I feel like as more people are coming out saying, Hey, I can cook more than just Southern food. Um I think society is embracing it a little bit more, but I still think there's always just this pushback. Um, I tend to say I come from the Culinary Institute of my parents and grandparents. Well, they're from Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. So my cooking roots are Southern, but now that I've spent pretty much all my life in Indiana, I'm taking the stuff that my mom and my grandma taught me how to do and saying, wait a minute, we can do this different. We can make this more efficiently. We can make this like way more flavorful. Um, and there's definitely resistance on both sides. There's resistance from my culture as a black woman, like you can't do that to fried chicken. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. But then there's also resistance from um, society in general, like, uh, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You stay in your little Southern bubble. So you really kind of get it both ways.
0: Yeah, and I think that, I mean, from the outside, it's frustrating to see people being pigeonholed. And the the more people I work with and the more people I get to know, like, the more you just realize that everybody's kind of in this together. That it's not this separation. And I think a lot of women and a lot of people of color get pigeonholed into various cuisines to the yeah. point where they don't have the, the same forward momentum that that white male chefs have.
1: Right. Right. It's, um, it's interesting because I don't know what the turning point is. Like, I think about growing up, most people recognize their mom or their grandma is like the most amazing cook. And it's the person that brings all these memories when it comes to food and um, who they learned from. And then somewhere in there, there's this switch to say, nope, men do it better. And I'm like, where is that switch? And what, at what point does that happen because there's almost like society like completely changes their mind and saying no, women are supposed to be in the kitchen. Oh, but wait, men can dominate the field. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm so confused.
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's make
1: up our mind here.
0: I, I think a lot of that might be the, the militant structure of, of European kitchens. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, colonialism is, is, obviously a bad force within our world and has been and it it kind of spreads throughout the world in that way and you know when when we have a country that was initially founded by European culture Mm -hmm. uh, there's a there was an emphasis on quality that was highlighting really just European cuisine and and so like I think a lot of that is just kind of like a lot of institutional racism is just kind of ingrained from day one that we've never really gotten away from.
1: Absolutely. absolutely. I think that's, that right there is, is huge for people to, especially white people, um, because white people are the primary beneficiaries of that. Um, And I think that just like recognizing that and admitting that can evoke so much change like across the board. But I feel like that's where, the challenges for a lot of people is admitting like the systems put in place are you know hundreds of years old and they are created to um show the most advantage to the european culture people want don't want to admit that um and i think i always say it's the three p's power privilege and protection and so like to admit that means that you're recognizing your privilege And with recognizing your privilege, you're probably going to give up some power that you either just don't want to give up or you may not even realize you had. Um, And then a lot of times, fight fight or flight kind of steps in and says, no, I'm going to protect this privilege and this power. And so you end up with this cycle of like recognizing, having that aha moment, but then kind of cowering back and saying, "Mm, no, this is comfortable. I'm going to protect my privilege.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think the last year has really, at least for me personally, has really awakened a lot of work that I needed to do for myself because it was hard to recognize all that. I mean, there's been so much, there's been such a dynamic change in the last, you know, eight, nine months, just culturally, that it's definitely hard to, to recognize. And, like, I think I recognize it more within the food sphere than my, kind of my social life because I've just been... I'm more attuned with the food sphere, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and working through kitchens, there's, I've always had, it seems like there's this weird divide of like a kitchen staff is predominantly Latino or predominantly African-American and very rarely have I seen them coexist. Um, Yeah. Which is a, which was a weird thing for me for a long time, but the more I thought about it and you know, the, the African-American experience seems to be, you know, forced service industry. So it makes sense that people don't necessarily want to work or for a long time, didn't want to work in restaurants, serving people. Like I, it it finally dawned on me one day that that was, that was a thing. But do you think there's a, do you think with the popularity of food that there's kind of a shift, at least in acceptance of, of going back into some of those things, or or is that still a wound that you think is not yet healed?
1: I think from a service standpoint, it's always going to be a tender spot for people of color, Black and Latino, um, just because they recognize the history and the ancestry behind Um, what serving is and how they could be treated and how people are still treated today. I have experiences where I will go into the kitchen for a dinner party and um, my friend that I bring to help me out, she's a white woman, and there's been plenty of times where um, maybe they didn't guest, traditionally it's guest, not the host, but guests don't know who I am. Um, and they will talk to her and ask her questions and not me. And I'm like, she's not even like a, a chef. She's literally here to cut my vegetables. I love her for it. Cause she cuts my vegetables and washes my dishes, but like, hello, talk to me. And so I think, um, there will always be this sense of being concerned that you are treated like the hired help. Um, yeah. But then I also think that just with um, the celebration of Blackness and Black culture and recognizing Black joy and even um, seeking out resistance, that you are going to find a lot more Black people in the creative space, namely food, that are going to shine more. And I think that uh, we are creating our own path and our own way to do that. Um, And there are plenty of people to come alongside us and support us and and walk along that journey with us. But I think that thanks to technology, thanks to social media, um, and thanks to just um, more people encouraging Black people to make a name for themselves and try different things and, you know, break the monotony. I think that you're going to see more people just doing that because they can and because they feel empowered to do
0: it just kind of dawned on me that there was a a, another just kind of privilege of of not having that weight on you being white um to just kind of personal reflection there Um, yeah yeah but I mean one of the things that you've been really active with advocacy um on social media at least Mm -hmm. and and I know in your you know you've got the diversity and inclusion background so it seems like it's definitely something that resonates very strongly with who you are and your brand. Mm -hmm. Um, How has the last year affected you?
1: Oh boy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's definitely two sides to it. Um, There's one side to it where I am recognizing and navigating a lot of trauma that I didn't know was trauma. And so the situations um, that occurred with, well, I won't even call them situations, the murders that occurred with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Sean Reed, so on and so on and so on just this year. Um, I think that the buzz that it created um, definitely like surfaced up some things for me. And so I've just been recognizing what is trauma what are my triggers um and even recognizing what it does to the body like I I blame my sore back and aching hands on cooking all the time but I'm recognizing that some of that is just lived trauma mm-hmm. um, and so yeah there's like a, you know this year I'm back in therapy and I didn't Not that I have a problem with therapy, but I'm like, dang, I'm in therapy because of everybody else. Can everybody else go to therapy and not me? (laughs) But um, that has been incredibly helpful. Um, But then the other side of the coin is when you think of hashtag Blackout Tuesday, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag Amplify Melanated Voices, it has created and amplified my platform to the point that I feel like I've been busting my ass for, for the last five or six years. And so the biggest part of me is like, okay, yes, I'm recognizing this trauma and I'm navigating that. And I'm finding ways to um, have resistance and celebrate black joy anyway. But the biggest part of me is like, it is about damn time because I have been working as hard, if not harder being a black woman than a lot of other people in this food creative space that I'm in, this creative entrepreneurship space that I'm in, and I'm just now, after being on national television and being on local television, um, you know, every other week for five or six years, and after, you know, sitting on panels and being on podcast, all these different things that I'm done, and I'm just like, why? Why did it take all these people to die? for someone to recognize that I have talent and skill and a voice that um, could benefit multiple people. And so, yeah, I have really walked through 2020, even in light of COVID saying guys, it's about damn time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I, 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 I can recognize how much more advocacy there's been on, at least on the behalf of the white community. I know the, the black community has been, screaming that this thing has been going on for so long um and that was that's another question that that I've been asking myself is is why did it take all this to really acknowledge that um
1: technology
0: it, it is but I think at least my justification I I've I'm trying to not accept anymore was that, you know, growing up in the nineties we, we were told that it was kind of this post-racial society and right because there was, you know, black actors on TV and you've got Denzel leading mm-hmm. movies and, and headlining stuff. And it, it just kind of out of sight, out of mind for a long mm-hmm. time. So when it was kind of right there in our face and we couldn't we couldn't give ourselves the excuse. It it was just we had to Acknowledge that it was going on because it was as soon as we we saw one it was like oh it's everywhere so yeah
1: yeah I I caution people I'm glad that you said out of sight out of mind because I caution people from saying they don't know what they don't know I truly believe that people know they just don't want to so it is easy to make it out of sight out of mind it's easy to sweep it under the rug it's easy to recognize all the different ways that it doesn't affect you versus recognizing twofold, the ways that it does respect, or does affect you. And so I wholeheartedly agree that it is out of sight, out of mind. Um, but I also feel like technology had a huge part to play in all of that. And if we hadn't seen, you know, those videos, kind of like you said, you saw it and now you realize that it won't go away. Um, I feel like it is kind of like, everyone is learning in this sense. Um, Because even myself, knowing that I have at this point, 12, 12 years, I don't know, 12 years of background in diversity and inclusion, there's still a lot that I'm learning even about black culture and black history. And so this is a very unique time for everybody to say, okay, I know that white people are saying, I thought that you know everything was fine and slavery's over. Black people are still uh, recognizing that I sat right next to you in grade school. We were taught the same history. And there's a multitude of people of color who were not taught their history from family members outside of school. Like I think about, um, Indigenous people and how well Indigenous people know their history. And they don't get that in textbooks. But when you think about Black history, when you think about um, Latinx history, a lot of that is missed in schools and it's also missed in the household. And so I feel like we are all learning together. That, that is the one area that there's somewhat of a level playing field when it comes to race. Because we are all unlearning history and relearning it if we're willing.
0: Yeah. All right. With that, I'm going to have to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a second. Okay. So we're back with Tenoria. Ask you of Tenoria's table. Uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the the different histories taught within school and and just the um, the fact that a lot of Black history isn't accurately taught or, or not even really touched on. But do you think that contributes to the, the Southern food experience within the black community, because it's um, there's a, there's an edible history there that is passed down.
1: Absolutely. I think that um, the history of some of the most basic things like rice, for example, I was, you know, only five years ago uh, that I learned about rice being braided into black women's hair as a way to travel with food um it was a grain it wasn't going to go bad in their hair um and it was a way to get food over easily and without a lot of weight like carrying a big basket of rice because they can take those grains and then plant them um or learning the history of black eyed peas like black eyed peas as a kid were like the only pea bean legume thing that i ate mm-hmm. um and now understanding the history of black eyed peas like i always knew that there was a cel- a celebratory component to black eyed peas cuz we ate them at new years but um so there's like prosperity as well as there's also liberation Um, because that was one of the crops that um, enslaved people were given there after slavery to try to make it on their own to plant and have their own crops Mm -hmm. Um, but then I also consider um, where was I going with that (sighs) when I think about how celebrations are had among black people I think I feel like Black culture is celebrated, but not it's celebrated and appropriated all in the same breath. Um, And so it's a very fine line to recognize the history that food plays and um, the culture that is integrated through food, but also considering giving credit where credit is due when it comes to food and culture and history Um, I definitely think there's still quite a bit of work to be done. For example, um, the big fad this year with the whipped coffee. The fact that that's not its name, and I don't even think I can pronounce it. Is it Delgado? I think it's Delgado. I have no Um, idea. But everyone's calling it whipped coffee. And I'm like, guys, this, this has been in existence for a long time and it comes from a specific culture. So before you go and make your TikTok video about it, let's learn about it. And so, yeah, there's, there's that historical component that um, can be really beautiful if people take the time to recognize it.
0: Do you think that ever kind of limits a, a culture to a time and a place like I not just within the the African American community, but like I think in the Southern community, there's this there's this idea that like you don't mess with this because it's been this way for so long. But yeah. do you think that inhibits growth and maybe think, even healing?
1: Yeah, I think um, as a culture, yes. As an individual, um, not always. Um, for example, when I, you know, when you think about um, a culture coming alongside saying, you don't do that to fry chicken, and then someone going out there and doing it, that is them just still saying, you know, I love my culture. I respect my culture. I'm going to go and try this. And maybe that'll make a name for my culture. And so I think that that can be um, wonderful. It could also be a disaster, but I think it could be wonderful. Uh, but then, on the other token, um, I do feel like there are some classics. We have to recognize the classics, and I think even recognizing and celebrating those classics could bring healing. Like I think, for example, um, shrimp and grits. It's what I made on Master Chef that Gordon Ramsay said is the best he's ever had in the Master Chef kitchen. And mine was by far the most traditional one out of the three other people that I was competing with. Um, and just thinking about um, using the Trinity and um, cooking your grits in stock in that water and the seasonings that you use. Like there is something beautiful and comforting about that. Um that can always allow a culture, a sense of home, always something to come back to those fond memories of Grandma making you know your favorites, those southern staples. And so there is um, a, a sense of ownership and some healing in that. Um, but then at the same time, if we're not open to someone else's shrimp and grits, that could be detrimental to that chef who is trying to be creative and think outside the box and create something different
0: yeah um talk to me a little bit about tenoria's table because i just realized that we haven't really got into that because we've been talking about so many other things
1: yeah Um,
0: talk to me about your business and what it's like being an entrepreneur in 2020 and all the all the struggles of, of trying to manage your own business
1: um, it is hard as hell. That's what it is. <laughs> um, I imagine. You know, Tenoria's table, I um basically I say I bring the restaurant to your home. I have never actually worked in a restaurant beyond like events where I got to like plate next to you, which was so dope. Yeah. Um, or you know, cooking for different events and stuff with people, but I have not consistently like had a you know, my work schedule set in a restaurant setting. And so Um, the the ability to kind of create my own path has been really fun and really rewarding, but also incredibly difficult because, um, I haven't quite, I, I knew a lot of things that I didn't want for my business, but I didn't really know what I wanted until recently. And really 2020 kind of helped shape that by shifting to having to do a lot of things virtually. Like, I can't tell you how many virtual cooking demos I've done this year, but I have been able to cook with Walgreens and um, Sidley or Sidley and Austin and people from Google and Lionsgate. It's just been really cool that it's exposed me to so many different people and really gotten lots of people excited about cooking. Um, I think this year people are obviously cooking more at home and cooking more for their immediate families and they've needed that help and support. So it's been a really cool opportunity to be one of those people. Um, but then also like, usually I have anywhere from, oh, I don't know, five to six dinner parties a month. And so far this year I've only had five total. Wow. Um so that's been a huge rock in the boat but even um just thinking about the direction that I want my business to go moving forward and um getting away from meal prepping cuz I used to go to clients homes and meal prep for them and um I'm not really doing that with covid and so just setting a, my own path um and kind of, I say to be an entrepreneur, you kind of have to have a Gumby-like mentality and 2020 has definitely forced me into that Um, and it's actually paid off. Like, I feel like the direction that my business is going, um, although it's still taking shape and it's still challenging, it could turn out to finally be the business of my dreams and not... Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, And not doing all the things that I had to do just to stay afloat because I was definitely doing that um, ever since I started doing Tenoria's Table full time Um, and trying to get to, you know, not do those as much and focus on um, really, just empowering people to cook for themselves. I always say that I want to be a tool and a resource. I don't necessarily want to be the person holding your hand and doing it for you. And that that goes to say in, in the anti-racism space as well as the cooking space. I don't want to be the person in your kitchen all the time. Um, I want you to feel empowered that you can do it too, and then you just call on me as a resource. And that's really because of COVID that has been the direction that my business has gone.
0: I, I think through the the first half of our conversation it it struck me how important context seems to be to you. Um whether it be history or just kind of understanding where you are. Mm-hmm. Um so I think I, I've had a similar experience of this year's kind of reprioritized and mm-hmm. it it sounds like it really kind of just focused your your gaze into the right direction. So yeah. that's a it's super exciting to hear I I love hearing that people are on the right path for them um yeah. and I think it's a really unique path too like I think so much of the emphasis over the last 15 years in food media has been on restaurant chefs and yep. then it was restaurant chefs cooking at home mm-hmm. um so like to hear there's other outlets out there I think is something that that people need to hear and if it's you know line cooks or people in culinary school or people that just thinking about, you know, getting into a professional cooking sphere. Um, I think too much of the time we think culinary school and we think restaurants, but you know, there's there's a world of food jobs out there that don't have anything to do with restaurants. Um
1: Yeah. I um actually talked to someone from NYU a couple of weeks ago. They were looking to get like a short snippet in an article and her major was food like she's studying food she's not in culinary school she's just studying food I'm like where was that when I was in college
0: yeah <laughs> not not where I went to school <laughs> not so. at all
1: like, that is awesome
0: so but how how has the food community embraced you because I know sometimes it's hard, at least you had a platform coming from TV and MasterChef and you had a reputation walking in, but how has the, the broader food and and chef community embraced you yeah. after you started doing that?
1: I think that um, if there's been any resistance from the food community, that a large part of that was probably in my own head because I recognized very early on, I don't have culinary training. Um, specific to, you know, years in culinary school. And I had a really, really, really hard time calling myself a chef um, until I did realize that, oh, wait, I do create my own menus. And I I do a lot of the things that chefs do just on a much smaller scale, just for my business, just for clients and not for restaurants. Um, And so I really struggled with a lot of that, Um, and then I realized that, you know, my, my path is my own and I get to create it. But I think that, um, some local things here to Indy that really helped me come into my own, um, are the groups, Indie Women in Food, um, Slow Food Indy, um, and then just connecting with those people. Um, I mean, that's how. I got connected with your wife, with Slow Food Indie, and just like realizing, oh, okay, there's like this big name person, because I remember the first time people asked me about you guys, I was like, I don't know who they are, I don't think I've met them before, and this was years ago, it's like, I don't think I've met them before, and they're like, oh, they're a big deal, well, that scared the crap out of me.
0: Scares me now.
1: (laughs) And so meeting you and Audra and realizing, okay, you guys are just normal, cool people. Um, and, you know, you guys are, share secrets and about food. And, you know, Audrey talks about frustration with a bread dough and, and stuff like, I'm like, oh, okay, these are like normal people. I can hang with these people. So that, the, I think just putting myself out there has been really beneficial to me and just getting over my own self because I do think that there is a good community out there um especially here in the city everybody's looking out for each other um especially this year um and so yeah a lot of that had to do with me getting over myself I remember I was just absolutely floored when Steve Oakley knew who I was I'm like wait a minute you know who I am he's like yeah I know who you are why does that surprise you I'm like oh I'm just nobody but, you know, recognizing that there is a buzz and people talk, but they're usually singing people's praises. So, yeah, a lot of that was just me getting over myself.
0: Where, I mean, obviously you're, you're excited about the direction of your business, but where do you want to see food go in the next couple of years? And where do you want to be in the next couple of years?
1: yeah um in the next couple of years for me um i i have spent the last four years since master chef with navigating 13 different opportunities to be on tv that none of which felt none of which like happened and mm-hmm. so i would love for you know opportunity 14 15 or 16 to actually happen <laughs> that would be yeah. great um I would love to write cookbooks um, and really just have a very clear um, position for my business as food and anti racism both pour into Tenoria's table. Um, Neither going away, both of them I feel like are vital to everyone's lives. Um, Anti racism is that people are going to have to go on for the rest of their lives. And like you said, at the beginning, we've all got to eat. And so I don't feel like they're ever going to go away, but I really want to send very clear messaging that they can both work together very well. Um, So that's that's really what I would like to see for myself and my business in the next couple of years is just creating a very clear, successful and profitable path (laughs) for that messaging. And then as food... All together, I just feel like um, cross culturally, so many different cuisines and people are being recognized and celebrated. And I would really like to see that take better shape in our city, in Indianapolis. Um, While I think that the cuisine in Indiana has grown so much, especially in Indianapolis, it's just Next level. 10 years ago, I don't think I would have been proud to admit that I was from Indiana working in the food scene. But now, I mean, we're a big deal. Um, But I still think that it is very whitewashed and vanilla. And so I feel like there's a lot of work to do there. So I would really like to see um, food celebrated and appreciated, not appropriated um, in our city.
0: I, I think that's a important distinction, the, the appropriation versus inspired by. Um, yeah. You want to talk on that for just a second and what you well, feel about that?
1: Yeah, you know, you'll get um, a chef or someone who might spend a couple months in another country and all of a sudden bring, you know, new food concepts over and take full credit for it as though it was just because of their studies. And it's like, no, let's get an expert in the kitchen, an expert in the room, whether it's from the corporate setting or the food setting, let's get an expert in the room who they know that that this is their culture. Um, Because eventually the appropriation bringing over this different culture it is eventually going to get whitewashed as well and so it's really important that we have someone at the center of you know that cuisine or someone at the center of that concept to ensure that it is maintaining its um authenticity And that um, the culture is getting celebrated and recognized for what it brings to the table instead of that person, typically a white person, is getting recognized. They should not be getting the recognition. Right. And so that's when there's um, an issue or that's when you go over from appreciation over to appropriation.
0: Yeah. I think it's, at least from what I'm, I'm hearing, I don't think you're advocating for for white chefs to hot cook the food that inspires them you're just trying to advocate for having more history more context and and more opportunity yeah. for other people i think that's i think so much of the time people get upset because they think that any kind of racial movement somehow removes their ability to aspire their um for themselves yeah. and I think that's I, I think you have to kind of disconnect your yourself from mm-hmm. some of these racial conversations. Um and it's funny too you you'd said something about, you know, racism or racial justice and, and food can kind of go hand in hand. But the more I learn about food, the more the more I, I realize like or the more empathetic I am to people from all over the world, the more you learn about their culture. And yeah it, it's just so inspiring to to find out that that people for you know mm-hmm. literally since before we could talk as a, a species have been eating food so like there there's very very few new ideas like you're right whatever it is that's inspiring you is coming from some place and there is a history and it's probably a long history so like yeah the more you can track that down the the more you realize like it's not about race or culture it, it's just it's just the journey that, that, that thing has gone on.
1: And understanding that history, at least in my own experience, has like inspired me to do better and create more instead of um, cause me to, you know, be frustrated that I can't call it my own. I'm like, no, let's, let's learn more about that so that, you know, we can inspire more people and be more creative. So.
0: Yeah. And, I I don't know. I, I know it's it, it's kind of a hard subject, but it's kind of not. The more the more I talk about it, the more I realize it's not a hard subject to talk about. Where things came from and and giving proper acknowledgement to you know its roots and, and different groups of people and recognizing hardships like it's all one conversation to me at this point because I I try to have this conversation as much as possible because I want more opinions. I want, I want to hear the things that that a lot of people. I don't think want to hear, like, I want to feel a little awkward and I want to question yeah. my own beliefs from it. And yeah. I, you'd posted something a while ago now um, about like, what work have you done and uh, talking about being comfortable with, with race. And it's just something I think about when I deal with kind of, anyone, anytime it is, is what do I know about you? Like, how can I judge you? Because I don't know your story. I don't know what you've been through. I I don't know any of that. So I I try to walk in with, with naive eyes and, and I want you to inform me on, on how to interact with you because you know your life better than I do.
1: Absolutely. I always say that we are all the experts of our own experiences. That's um, kind of beautiful. Yeah, it, it became really important for me to recognize that when I started talking about experiences of racism, and a lot of people in my circle, um, at the time, they were mostly white, and they would say, but did that really happen? Are you sure? Are you sure it happened like that? I'm like, guys, I'm not just making this up. Like, this is really what happened. I I know what happened. I was there. And so, yeah, we are the expert of our own experiences. And because of that, we get to choose what we say, how we say, but also we get to set boundaries on how people respond. Like, now, these days my experiences are not up for debate <laughs> probably mm-hmm. about three years ago I would debate you to the death just to prove my point um and so yeah it's it's really interesting how um hardship and life experience can humble us and make us um, better people
0: absolutely well I I'm almost out of time here but I I really appreciate the conversation we've had. And um, I think it's important for people to hear. I I think if you're not talking to people about their experiences, like, I think, I think you're, you're missing out, but also like, don't, I I know, again, you've alluded at least on social media, like don't ask your, your black or African or whatever person of color friends, how to, how to respond to something because it's part of the, the social sphere at that point. Yeah. Like, like do the work yourself. Don't, don't take the easy. Well, it's not even the easy way out. It's just the wrong way to. It's yeah. not, it's not taking ownership of your, um. what were your three Ps before your.
1: Your privilege, power and protection. Yeah. yeah
0: it, it's yeah. not taking advantage of that. It, it's, it's saying, you know, I don't want to really think about this and. I just want you to tell me what to do.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean Google is awesome, guys. Like all those <laughs> curiosities, just Google them. If you can Google cat videos, you can you can Google, you know, some stuff about racism or I always recommend that people follow someone that they wouldn't normally follow specific to race, whether it's just, you know, if you're interested in cooking and you follow a chef of color, or maybe it is specific, someone that um, does anti-racism work. Both. Follow them on social media for 30 days. It's just 30 days. And if you feel like after 30 days you need to unfollow them because they made you uncomfortable, good. Keep following them. Um, but if you just choose to unfollow them because you didn't like what they had to say, then there's some internal work that still needs to be done. Um, but yeah, th- those types of things, they're out there for free. Um and now, a lot of times when I do uh, my anti-racism work, you got to pay me, because you're going to pay me to be traumatized, that's the way yeah. I look at it. <laughs> so, yeah, look at, look at the different resources that are out there, because they are out there. They've always been out there, and now they're easily accessible.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, I would just recommend you follow people from different walks, no matter what, because yeah, people are vibrant. Like, people are... <sighs> if you're just in your own sphere of, of whatever it is, your life is like, you're not going to find the inspiration. You're not going to find empathy. You're not going to find the human experience because it's, it's so diverse. It's so different. It's so exciting. So we'll talk- I would advocate that people do that. So, <sighs> all right. So Tenoria. Of Tenoria's Table in Indianapolis. You wanna <laughs> give out social media handles where people can find you, all the all the business side of things?
1: Yeah, so everything is Tenoria's Table. Um in my website, my Instagram, my Facebook, my Twitter, my Pinterest, my LinkedIn, everything is Tenoria's Table. Um you can follow me in all those spaces. Um, if you want to inquire about my services, whether it's on the anti-racism side or the food side and see recipes and things like that, all of that's on my website. I'm really sorry. My mom did not name me Susie Smith. It's one in two R's guys.
0: (laughs) One in two R's. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation and can't wait to talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. This was fun.
0: All right. Bye. Bye. All right, that's going to do it for us. I, as always, I wanted to thank my guest, Tenoria, for, for coming on. I really appreciate people coming on and sharing their stories and, and being candid. I think we live in this echo chamber world where so much of the time our, our own thoughts are just kind of resonated back to us. And that's just kind of the sphere we live in. And anyone that's in opposition to that is is just kind of this polarizing force that, that we feel combative against and also you when you actually deal with human beings in real life outside of the digital space i think we're so reserved in our thoughts so having having real conversation with someone is just kind of this breath of fresh air that i really enjoy so thank you for everybody that's been on and if you're if you're liking what we're doing send us a message if you want to be on the show shoot us a line and we'll figure it out. We'll I'll keep having conversations for as long as people are willing to to talk. So uh Tenoria, thank you. Little housekeeping. Uh hope everybody stays safe this holiday season. We're right at the beginning of holidays and I, I'm really pretty scared and you know the the more responsible people are, the the faster we're gonna get through everything and the quicker restaurants can return to some form of normality with, and and not just restaurants, but there there's farmers, there there's producers, there's supply chains, there's uh you know, trades people that, that work on kitchens and, and in restaurants, there's so many people that are dependent on small restaurants. So I, I, if you haven't, or if you can, please reach out to your state legislature or your, State senators and, and representatives, and and urge them to help pass the the restaurant act. Um, I think it's an important piece of legislation to to help a industry that is uniquely affected by the the current health crisis, because we're we're one of the first places that was affected. We're shut down. We're not able to we're not able to generate revenue in the same capacity by mandate a lot of places or pretty much everywhere and also we're going to be one of the last to recover because it requires consumer confidence to go out and eat so if you haven't or if you can please reach out to your legislature and and urge them to help support restaurants the the restaurant act has 49 uh co-sponsors in in the Senate, but it probably will never actually appear on the floor. So it, I think if, if it actually gets to the point of a vote, it'll be a, an easy pass. Um, I think it's got a lot of bipartisan support. So, you know, do your, do what you got to do because, you know, we just got through an election cycle. I know everybody's politically tuned in right now. You might be burnt out on it, but you're, you're at least kind of aware of the, the way the government is currently working in what what we hope the government can you know pivot to do to to support us a little bit better um if you have not already please go follow us at one in three podcasts on instagram uh please rate us five stars in whatever your podcatcher is uh, and go follow somebody else on on the instagram that you might not have i think it I think it will make your world a little bit more vibrant to have glimpses into another culture and it hopefully will pique your interest to, to make you, you know, grow as a person. So thank you. Have a safe week. Have a great week. We're out. Bye.